Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And welcome back for yet another episode. We're so excited uh, for our episode today. We talked to Arthur Millick, a fantastic guest, and uh, it gets pretty pretty spicy there towards the end. Before we get started with him, however, we want to talk a little bit more about just some of the things we're trying to do here at American Moment. Like we've said to you guys before, uh, please go to our website at AmericanMoment.org. There you'll find all sorts of information about all of the things that we have cooking other than this podcast. There you'll find information about Amcanon, our aggregator of some of the best books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, and more that help you think about politics the way we do. You can find information about Summit, a conference on American statecraft that'll be happening in the early fall and you can sign up for the interest form there and you can find find out about our fellowship the fellowship for american statecraft which i think nick has an update for yeah so just as a reminder this wednesday march 31st your last day to apply you absolutely should um i've had a ton of great applications already i mean you know this i'll like send you screenshots from ones i get in in an email um I think that's one of the been one of the like most amazing things since we've launched is like seeing these people, um, you know, you people, I guess, with a uh, with a passion and and a, and a soul for wanting to save America. Um, so really excited about the fellowship. Um, you know, if you have any any questions, uh, you can um, email info at AmericanMoment.org. Uh, happy to answer any questions you have about the fellowship and you can apply the URL is, I believe, AmericanMoment.org slash fellowship. Yeah, so please make sure that you apply for that. And again, the, the, the applications we've gotten have been truly fantastic. What we're trying to do at American Moment is not to build a mass movement of young people or anything particular. There's other organizations that are better suited to do that. But what we're particularly interested in is that the young people who are motivated and interested in getting involved in the long term need to have an institution that's rooting for them, that shares their priorities, the priorities that inform everything American Moment does, whether it's being serious about our immigration regime, whether it's about restraining uh, the, the aspersions of empire that the American foreign policy regime has, whether it's supporting families, as we talked about on our last episode with Terry Schilling. All of these things are absolutely critical priorities that there's just not enough institutions in D.C. and elsewhere prioritizing. However, there is one, uh, and we have the leader of it uh, on our podcast today. His name is Arthur Millick, and he's the executive director of the Claremont Institute's new D.C. office that they call the Center for the American Way of Life. Look, I'm entirely biased here. The Claremont Institute are dear friends of American Moment. They've been huge supporters of ours behind the scenes, and they've gone to bat for us when we get unfair attacks sent our way. Arthur and, uh, and Nick and I have a fantastic conversation during the podcast about everything ranging from what needs to be done with our universities to big tech censorship to whether or not we really have a free press in this country and what we need to do in order to solve that and much, much more. Uh, you know, Arthur's work, again, he's the executive director at the Center for the American Way of Life. Uh, his work focuses on the tradition of American political thought and freedom of speech. He used to be at the Heritage Foundation uh, and the House Committee on Armed Services. His writing has appeared in countless publications. Uh, I won't list them off all right now, but he's just a fantastically intelligent mind and really uh, has sharp insight on the challenges facing the country right now. So we hope you'll enjoy it. I don't know, uh, Nick, what do you think of the episode? I think it was great. You know, I he's just really great <laughs> at providing like historical context for like 
um, you know, constitutional governance. Uh, I think that's something that's is missing a lot on the right. You know, when we talk about how do we kind of preserve the American way of life, you know, uh, what the, the, you know, Claremont Institute's uh, main goal is with their operation here in D.C. Uh, and I don't think enough people on the right know how, you know, the Constitution actually supports that. Um, you know, it supports the American way of life. It supports um, decency and it supports fairness for all Americans. So, uh, really enjoy the conversation with Arthur today. Um, feel really lucky to have to have met him and you know recorded a podcast with him within the first five minutes of shaking his hand. So um, I guess we'll go right to him. Welcome to the podcast, Arthur. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So. You know, much like us, you're in the middle of helping create something new at the D.C. branch for the Claremont Institute. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing at the Center for the American Way of Life? And uh, I, just as an aside, I've gotten it accidentally. I've, I've said Center for the American Way at least twice, which is a communist organization, is my understanding. Have other people made that mistake? <laughs> Probably, but, 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 they, but they get it right in front of my face. That's right. That's right. So tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing and, and what you're trying to achieve at the center. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, we are a part of the Claremont Institute, which is a think tank. I hope your uh, viewers, listeners are aware of it. We've been around for about 40 years. We do a whole host of things. It's really, in my view, and I don't just say this because I work there. I really mean it. It's why I wanted to work there. It's the most intellectually impressive think tank in America. Uh, what we're interested in is the broad view. We don't deal in small ball policies. We don't have an expert that's working on foreign policy in Africa and tax policy and what have you. Uh, instead, we are interested in the health of our country, the civilizational level trends, and where we're going from here, all with a view to restoring constitutional government to the extent that that's possible. Um, and my center specifically, which is located in Washington, D.C., as you know, we just opened, look, we really have a very simple charge. Uh, it's, it's two things. It's one, making the right honest and therefore useful to the country, the mainstream right. And the second is battling against speaking out boldly, honestly, um, against woke doctrines uh, that promise to bring about a different America than the one that you and I grew up in, and in my view, an altogether bad America. Uh, and to do what's possible against the institutions that are owned by the left. And when I say that, I specifically mean uh, the press through libel laws, big tech through antitrust, uh, and universities by defunding them. Uh, just to give you an easy example on the universities, it's unconscionable uh, that the American public, taxpayers, are being defrauded. Money is being taken uh, from them. It's being given to students through student loans or through research grants in order to make of those young people, uh, people that despise their parents, despise their country, uh, and want to undermine it. As I said, it's unconscionable that we tolerate such things. Uh, and it's the way that establishment conservatism has comported itself over the past uh, several years, always focusing on small ball policies. Can we get an extra tenure line here? Can we bring Ben Shapiro on campus here? And the result of 50 years of these kinds of small ball tactics is that the universities are now undermining the nation and we are on campuses begging just to speak. And so I give this example 
just to show that you know a new conservatism has a great role in recapturing these institutions or moderating the ones that currently exist, moderating them in their power, moderating them in their um, vitriol, their anti-Americanism. So that's, uh, I've bitten off more than I can chew, uh, but I think that conservatives have to think big. Uh, we have to think clearly and boldly about what can be done at this point. Absolutely. I think the establishment conservatism point is something that's obviously near and dear to my heart, reforming what it means to be a conservative in this country, to be of the right. What are some of the failures that are front of mind for you? You know, you mentioned how we've allowed the university system to be utterly captured by the right. Um, I guess there, there's two angles to this, right? There's the worldview and then there's the tactics. And, and they're obviously kind of in a pool together and they feed into each other. Where specifically do the failures of, of the conservatism of the last 30 years lie? Well, look, I think that this question has been uh, discussed in detail and by a lot of people, and I'm not so sure that I can contribute something completely novel on it, but I think there's a way to summarize it, which is that uh, the old guard was full of uh, smart people, capable people, but they never thought for a moment that, you know, the country, this country, like all other countries, can disappear at some point that it can be overrun to such a degree by uh, a political party, by its constituents that are so hostile to constitutional government, that everything that you thought was stable is now unstable. Uh, and they lived in this kind of dreamy fantasy that every day was 1980 and it was sunny in Washington. And all we have to do is cut taxes. All we have to do is just keep our corporations alive, feed the animal, and everything will kind of work out fine. Look, in a certain way, they can be forgiven for such things. Uh, and the reason is that uh, there is some truth to the fact that we are a commercial republic. And uh, that means that, that industry and prosperity really is one of the missions of our, uh, of our nation. But that doesn't mean that there can't be disparities in that kind of prosperity. It doesn't mean that you can uh, so degrade a working class by promising it unlimited freedom, which ends up meaning you know, pornography consumption, drug use, all of this kind of stuff, sending away their jobs overseas for marginal gains for stockholders and corporations, and think that, no, this is still going to be a stable, normal country when you have a citizenry that has been treated this way. So uh, you know, they can be, in a way, forgiven, uh, but it, there was a kind of naivety that drove all of these policies for so long. And part of the reason for that was, uh, you know, I was on a phone call with somebody um, just today, and he asked me, uh, where are you from? I said, uh, you know, your number's a Bethesda number. Are you from Bethesda? And I said, no, I'm from Atlanta, from the South. Uh, and he said, thank God. And what he meant by that was that he was, we didn't know each other, and he hoped that I wasn't part of that class that lives to make these kinds of empty promises that has been utterly irresponsible for a very long time, uh, but that has no idea what's going on in the country. Uh, so that, that conservatism formed a class onto itself, created an echo chamber where they could only hear each other's cacophony, went to conferences, patted each other on the backs, gave each other awards, supported each other's salaries, invited each other to talks, uh, while the country was going in a totally different direction. And they never visited that country except to go to some conference. I think that, that it, it sums up a lot of the failures uh, pretty succinctly. You know, what I can't help but wonder is that is it too late? And this is obviously a question that a lot of us ha have thought about. And uh, we think that it's not and that there are still solutions to be had. But but what's your how uh, 
but I, but I do think a, a clarity that's necessary is realizing, you know, what time is it? Is it so to speak? And and you and the other folks at Claremont have been very urgent in your tone. What are the threats that are are really manifesting now that that show just how far gone we are? And what happens in the next five, 10, 15 years if if we don't meet the challenge head on in the way that we need to? Well, uh, I don't think this stuff is you know that difficult to game out. I think the difficulty is accepting it. Um, let me just say a word on your your first comment. You know, everywhere uh, on the right, there is this use of the term black pill, and I really dislike it. And I dislike it because uh, it it it's almost always accompanied by a kind of snobbery. Uh, you know, I've seen the truth. I know what necessity is. Uh, necessity means it cannot be otherwise. And I know that, and the the scales have fallen from my eyes. And therefore, I am free uh, to just think and act as I want and to say anything I want because I know what necessity is, and it's always bad. So it's always accompanied by like this, you know, faux depth. But the truth is, we don't know. We don't know. Um, and I think it's far from over, actually. I think that this country has a lot of pockets of genuine health. I mean, if you just travel this country, you see it. I'm from the South. I see a lot of pockets of health, a lot of people that really are attached to political liberty, a lot of people that see wokeism and are totally disgusted by it, but need an off-ramp to speak out against it. And so my view is that uh, it's really the, this, this handful of institutions that leverages its power against not just citizens materially that can take away their jobs, that can start lawsuits against them, but most importantly, that can humiliate them and that can destroy their self-respect. And that's the real, that's one of the major powers of the left. I don't, we can maybe talk about this later. I'm not the expert on this. Christopher Caldwell is, uh, who is a colleague <coughs> of mine at the Claremont Institute, who is uh, a very deep thinker and wrote a, a very fine book, which uh, I'm disappointed to see that you don't. Like it, <laughs> it's you only copy. so high. Eventually, yes. it'll just get higher and higher. Um, yes, um, it is on our our book list. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I'll I'll accelerate that by giving you a copy. Uh, the point is that it, he, I think, very astutely and correctly shows that it was uh, really uh, the civil rights movement and the legislation that came out of it, which grafted on a new constitution onto the old constitution and either undermined or or really uh, destroyed certain rights, like the freedom of association, for example, uh, the freedom of conscience. But the point that I'm making is that that new constitution uh, is held together by a system of laws in the states and in the federal government, federal bureaucracies, which are really the legal underwriting uh, structure of identity politics. So I don't mean to say, in other words, that it's just a matter of speaking out against the left. There's also this infrastructure of laws that conservatives have not thought about uh, for a very long time, but that ought to be thought about if you know we, we have a shot at preserving political liberty in America. And this is getting to the idea that you know, if disparities exist, it is necessarily the cause that, that, that the cause is necessarily discrimination, right? Like this is this is the orienting worldview that the political left has used and, and often the right is bullied into using as well that the and, and that therefore these disparities need to be rectified using the heavy hand of the state. I mean, am I getting that right? Yes, but I'd like to just uh, th those that's the polite way of putting it. And it's not wrong. But uh, let me let me quickly just summarize the thought of uh, somebody who has been uh, elevated recently uh, and doesn't deserve a bit of it, but it just shows the times that we live in. Uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, who is now famous. Woke uh, Pope. 
Yeah, woke Pope. That's right. <laughs> who, who is now famous beyond measure, and of course, you know, now he charges I don't know fifty, sixty thousand uh, dollars to give corporate talks. But there is a central thesis uh, in what he's saying, and I don't mean to beat up on him in particular because I think he's just carrying the inertia that is that others believe in on the left, and it's something like this. It's like, look, um, the marginalized. Primarily, he means African-Americans, but not just African-Americans. It's all marginalized groups are fundamentally superior to their oppressors, who he is not shy about saying who they are. They are white Americans. Uh, so the marginalized are fundamentally superior to their oppressors in two regards. Uh, regard number one is morally. Uh, they're morally superior because by virtue, he says, my marginalization is a gift. It is a gift. That's a quote somewhere in the beginning. And it's a gift because it, you've actually read his book. Yeah, I have. Oh my I, goodness! I I'm so books. sorry. <laughs> no, you shouldn't apologize. I read these books so that you don't have to. Yeah. Um, Thank you for your service. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, he says that marginalization is a gift because it has allowed him to see what justice is. In a way that others, the oppressor group, by virtue of either the color of their skin or of some uh, original sin or some biological issue, these questions remain open as to why. Um, do not have access to what justice means. They are fundamentally distorted and deformed by, their, by the power structures that exist, he claims, to support only them. And so they cannot hear the just pleas and cries of the marginalized. But what it means is that the marginalized know what justice is and what desert is, who deserves what. And in a second regard, <clears throat> uh, he thinks that the marginalized are intellectually superior as well. They're intellectually superior because they can understand all of the, as he says, the white superstructures, the laws, the all the things that have been used, he claims falsely, to keep down the marginalized, to destroy their self-respect. But uh, the oppressor cannot understand any of those things about the marginalized. He cannot understand marginalized culture. It is cultural appropriation to even just pretend to understand it. And so this is, I think that, as I said, Kendi nicely captures what what is at the heart of wokeness. And so if that's the doctrine, it means that the goal is to create a kind of racial caste system in America, whereby the laws, institutions, uh, all the powers are used in order to take away the powers, the prestige, the self-respect of the oppressor and elevate the marginalized who are intellectually and morally superior. And look, that is one of the most uh, anti-American doctrines that it is imaginable to think up. Uh, it's against the equality uh, of the laws, or the, 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 the equal rule of laws. It's necessarily against the freedom of thought. It's necessarily against the freedom of speech. It's necessarily against a whole host of rights upon which this country is based. Um, so that was a bit of a long-winded answer, I'm sorry, but- <clears throat> I, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, there's something that I want to ask you on that. You know, you were talking about, uh, you know, constitutional governance earlier, and it is, um, you know, obvious that that a lot of this wokeness and, and, you know, what's happening in the universities, which are now institutions of the left, is, is evil. Um, I know you briefly touched on some things that we could do about it. Uh, but one of the refrains that I hear most frequently from institutions and people who work at those institutions in D.C. is that, oh, that's not constitutional. So, you know, we talked with Terry Schilling, uh, the American Principles Project last week about, you know, pornography as, as a great example of this, um, you know, how it's 
so bad for young people in this country and is destroying the family. But the minute that you say anything about wanting to do something about this, whether it's age verification, lawsuits, outright banning it, you know, all of a sudden just this like cadre of libertarians appears to say, oh, but the First Amendment, you can't do that. You know, so, you know, basically a two part question. One, you know, what can we do about the, you know, evil, I guess, that's being perpetrated in our country? And two, how do we defend ourselves against the people, you know, purportedly in our own party uh, as to like how to support us in this fight? Well, uh, right. Um, let me let me go on the example that you just gave of, of pornography. Um, I, you know, I think pornography is very bad and uh, I don't think it's a kind of central issue. Uh, it's on the side, but it's important. Uh, look, first of all, when you look in a little bit of detail, it doesn't take much time, just a little bit of detail, uh, at the laws that were on the books in the States and at the original understanding of the speech clause in the First Amendment, you quickly see that obscenity was excluded from uh, uh, protections. So in other words, and this is still in place, I mean, you don't see pornographic billboards, for Mm -hmm. example, in a family town. There's still some view that uh, obscenity is not good. Uh, But that's our kind of bastardized, perverted view that this category is expanded. In reality, up until the 50s, pornography was banned in almost every single state. And there are plenty of court cases that uh, articulate why it was that it was banned. And the the operative word was that uh, these uh, types of things, magazines, uh, films before film, but even literature, which was too sexualized, drummed up prurient interests. Now, I give talks on this sometimes, and I usually ask uh, for a vote of who has heard the word prurient. And it's very few people. And the reason is, well, the word, by the way, I should say, the word means um, uh, kind of untutored sexual desires um, in, in young people. And the word, the reason that that word is not known is because that concept has disappeared. We don't think that anything is prurient. We think that all should be explicitly shown and stated, and it's just a matter of consent. Mm. And the founders' view, and not just the founders, many people's view, just sensible common sense was that you do not excite these kinds of sexual passions if you want men that are attached to their husbands and kids that do not bloom too early and become sexualized too early and therefore become distorted by all of the sexual passions that accompany sexual appetites. Uh, So anyways, that was... Not quite your question. Uh, what was your question? Tell me. Tell me again. Well, yeah. So I, I, I really just want to know, like, how we can work with other people in yes. our party who are extremely concerned about the Constitution yeah. to preserve the American yeah. way of life. You yeah. know, as as you and and the rest of the folks at Claremont see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To, to to maybe yeah. put it a different way, um, one of the thing that one of the things that conservatives like us are very interested in is reevaluating the role of the state um, in potentially advancing some of the ends that we seek or or taking a second look at even things like constitutional originalism, as our friend Josh Hammer and Matt Peterson recently wrote about, Um, you know, is the existing toolkit of what is permissible 
under our constitutional structure enough to pull us out of darkness? And where uh, have we convinced ourselves that uh, we aren't allowed to go, that we in fact are? Yeah. Okay. That's great. So um, on your question, uh, yeah, I think that there actually is a way to work with certain people who are still kind of in the coalition. I mean, my view, my personal view is that I would rather actually libertarians go to the left uh, fully, uh, drop conservatives. And the reason for that is that they would be a healthy check on the left uh, if they are uh, honest to their creed, uh, limited government, uh, constitutional law, but totally liberal on all uh, social issues. Mm. They would be a good counterbalance to the left in that regard. That's not going to happen. Uh, so what should we do? Well, uh, make them more honest, push them on their own principles. So what does that mean? Uh, you say you're for a constitutional government. You say you're for, therefore, for the freedom of conscience, the freedom of association, the freedom of speech. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there is a behemoth that has expanded and will infinitely expand from civil rights legislation or, uh, diversity teachings in all universities in state governments and federal governments, well, why don't you care about that? There was a period in the 90s where people like Richard Epstein wrote about this, honestly, um, and then it just disappeared. So there are ways to say, well, you know, are you honest about what you actually want or do you just pick and choose your battles so as to preserve your donors, so as to not call too much attention to yourself and so as to preserve your sinecures? So there's a way. Uh, I think. But we need to think more cleverly. I mean, this is one of the things that is missing in conservative thinking uh, relentlessly is just the basics of power politics. You know, conservatives are used to just uh, doing two things, you know, uh, flowery images on the one hand uh, and then just begging on the other hand. Mm. No sense of how to use muscle, no sense of how to uh, twist arms, uh, which leads them inevitably to just cave on almost anything. One of the things that I, one of the examples that I like to give is, um, I'm sure you guys have seen it, is the interview between Tucker Carlson and Mike Braun, the senator yes. from Indiana. Yep. Yeah, you guys have seen it. Well, we and- had a redux <laughs> of it just uh, this week with Christy Nome as well. Yes, uh, except, uh, yes, that was good. But this was, you know, the height of, Tucker's art. Uh, He was brilliant in this Mike Braun. Because what Mike Braun ended up saying, this was at the height of the George Floyd riots this summer, what Mike Braun uh, was trying to do was pass a law that was basically whatever the left wanted, but just a little less. And Tucker said, you know, why precisely are you doing this? This law actually makes no sense. And the senator said something like, well, this is the only way that we can have a seat at the table. In other words, um, The left always controls the moral high ground. The left always knows how to twist arms. And so in that circumstance, rather than recapturing the moral high ground, or rather than having your own means of twisting arms, you just cave, and then you can be a nice little boy and get a pat on the head and uh, survive. Well, that's kind of like the, it's kind of become like the typical, I forget who uses this phrase all the time on Twitter, but like like the Republican loser mindset, basically that like, oh, if we just compromise and, 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 you know, cave in, maybe maybe they'll spare us. You know, I really like your point about using muscle. And it reminds me of um, a Politico article this week. You know, they interviewed Marshall Kozlov and Helen Andrews from um, from uh, the American conservative and. She had this quote in there where she talked about 
um, you know, Trump and his personality. And she outright says, um, you know, there are a lot of people who talk about like whoever comes up with post-Trump personality politics, you know, will win the day. I think that's idiotic. Like part of what people liked was Trump's like, I'm just going to destroy you and implement what I want mentality like there. And, you know, it it didn't work super well, like all the time, uh, you know, because of the personnel problem. Um, but I really think there's something to that, uh, that what the American people want is someone to fight for them. Um, they want a party that fights for them. They want a president that fights for them. They want city council members that'll fight for them. Um, so I think that's a really important point. You mentioned something uh, in the intro about, you know, bringing the fight to universities by defunding them. Um, you know, I, I went to a small private Christian college in Minnesota and uh, I have a ton of friends, you know, that I made there and I see their posts on Facebook now and they're like, they're Marxists. Like <laughs> Billy Graham was like the second president of this school. And it feels like half the people I see on Facebook, uh, you know, are just like out and out communists now. Uh, so what I want to ask you is if the conservative position should be to defund the universities and and encourage people to do other things with their lives, what exactly should the role of higher education for young people in the conservative movement and in the Republican Party be? Should people go? Should they not? You know, what's what's your kind of recommendation, I guess? Well, look, that that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, but let me let me give you the easy answer. Uh, it's not acceptable for the federal government, state governments to be funding universities, colleges that are openly trying to undermine the nation. Mm -hmm. It's not acceptable. So a lot of work can still be done there. Um, in addition, I would just add, you know, in 1890, 10% of the college age, uh, uh, 10 of the college age of Americans went to college. In 1970, it was about 20. Now it's 40. There's no reason that it should be 40%. What we need in addition, though, is an off-ramp. States can start designing maybe, you know, I don't say this often, but they should look to Europe. They should start designing apprenticeship programs mm. uh, that can do a great deal in helping funnel smart, talented, uh, or forget that, just normal young people into learning skills, learning trades. Uh, look, this is partly why um, it's one of the, it's not frequently mentioned, one of the reasons that we have such a huge need, as it is, I say in quotes, as it is said by both left and right for illegal immigrants, is because once you go to college, you don't want a drywall. You're a snob. You become a snob. And I see no lack of dignity in providing for your family and doing mm. real work. If anything, I think <clears throat> many of those people are rather superior to a lot of the college grads that I meet who are distorted by all sorts of empty theories, uh, uh, shallow vanity. So we need apprenticeship programs that are guided by states to help young people find a place in the world so that it doesn't look like a college degree is the end all be all. But the real trouble, frankly, is parents. Uh, parental vanity that says, no, my son or daughter needs to go to XYZ university so that I can brag to my friends. And so, so much of it is showing parents relentlessly that, no, your child, when he goes there, 
or she will become a stranger to you, may despise you, may, may, may openly work to undermine your way of life. That's what they're being taught. Uh, and so if there's more clarity on that, I think that the ambitions will ratchet down and there will be, and I already see this emerging among uh, a lot of parents I know, there will be a kind of more moderate, more reasonable sense that, no, what I want is my kids to be happily married to like-minded people and to have a normal profession so that they can support themselves rather than these dreams that, you know, <clears throat> the only happiness that my son or daughter and me can have is if my son goes to Yale and does finance in Manhattan. Those dreams, those fairy tales that were spun for, so, for you know, two generations have to be critiqued and come to an end. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I, I actually have some personal experience with this. Uh, apologize to our listeners that already know this. Uh, this is the first time we've met, so yeah. I haven't had the chance to uh, chat with you about this. But I actually grew up as a uh, missionary kid in Honduras. Mm. Um, so, you know, my parents, uh, around when I was 11 or 12 or so, we moved to actually a trade school, boarding school for underprivileged boys that would teach a trade uh, during half the day, and then the other half of the day they go to school. So we moved there on this pretty like privileged, snotty white kid. And my parents are like, all right, you're going to do like the best job there is at this school. You're going to go work in the porquerisa, the pig barn. And so I spent several years uh, shoveling pig excrement for four hours a day. Right. Um, and I think, listen, like I've been to college, you know, I've, I've been a part of like launching a small business, you know, we're doing this thing now. And I still think some of the most like formative working hours in my life were shoveling pig excrement, you know? Right. And uh, it leads to like, now I fill the water filter in the office <laughs> and I take out the garbage. Like I'm not too big to do any of that yeah. stuff, you know? So I really think there's something right. to that. Well, there's there's also an irony that, you know, um, one of my friends did a similar trip as you did. And what he observed was, I forgot exactly where it was, but I, I think it was Honduras. What he observed was, that there were uh, very few working men there, mm. and in that village anyways. And do you know why? They had all illegally immigrated to the United States. Yeah. yeah. And so they were importing college kids like you to do the work that the males that would have done it uh, weren't doing. Yeah. And so it's, a, it's, it's actually quite a perverse thing. Um, well, go ahead. Yeah, so that's like part of how actually this, sorry, not trying to get you too off no, track here, but, but this is part of how this school got started uh, because there's this huge misconception that like, you know, a lot of Americans would assume that women in Honduras are not very highly educated, but but it's actually the reverse. It's, it's young men because, you know, when you go to villages and the only people that are there are women, children, and old men, like over the age of 70, yeah. these young boys who are like 10, 11, 12, like they're the ones that are spending 12 hours in the field. You know, they're the ones that are right. going to do the grocery shopping and stuff like that. Like it's, it's, these kids are forced to grow up um, from a very young age and provide for their family and, and their dads, you know, maybe here in the States, they maybe, you know, were around their dad until they were three years old and then their dad right. left them for, yeah for better opportunity, you know, right. as, as they say, um, you know, I, I highly doubt that's true. You to find get human trafficked by a cartel across <clears throat> the border to do, you know, wage slavery in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you get a lot of people like, you know, talking about how, oh, this is good for us. Like it's good for the GDP. And I know this may be like kind of a, a cringy argument, but have we ever like thought about 
what is good for the people coming from these countries and also these countries. Like one of the biggest things that my parents face uh, in Honduras is that there's no there's no bench for leadership for their country because every young man who who could lead the country could lead communities is here, you know, crammed like sardines in a one bedroom apartment, you know, hiding from ice. Like all the people who could have led that society uh, are here. And so it's just, sorry to get off on a tangent, it's just big passion issue for me. Um, and I think it's why what we're doing is so important. Like we have a moral obligation to raise a generation of young leaders who will take this country and, and you know, leaders in other countries as well to, to make the world a better place. Though we're obviously focused on America on this podcast. So you, you mentioned earlier how I, I think there's almost two separate things that we have to distinguish here because to me it is the you know mediocre degree mill school uh you know uh, that that is simply indebting people but not actually providing them with any skills um you know that has great inflation that basically needs to be done away with uh entirely but you know the 10 percent the five percent whatever the number is of a nation uh that that should be going to a college or university, um, you know, to the the Yales or the Harvards, the, the you know these Ivy schools or what have you, you know, the institutions in American life that are supposed to be shaping our elites are fundamentally broken at every level, and they are teaching uh, a, a a degenerate worldview, a la Ibram X Kendi or or any other number of leaders uh, that will fundamentally serve the nation poorly. What do you think the pathologies in today's you know, elite America are and how are they going to cause consequences for us for generations? Well, that's a that's a big question. I'm not sure I can answer it, but I, I there's a part. Uh, so I my I have a life outside of my work. And uh, in that life, besides being a dad and a husband, I uh, I study the work of Descartes. I'm very interested in him. I'm writing a dissertation on him. Anyways, um, he has this really nice little observation where he's talking about how scholasticism has ca captured philosophy. He says that the problem is that uh, these people uh, have essentially tenure. And because there's no uh, governing authority that will punish them, their thoughts spin out into all sorts of abstractions to the point that they simply, there's no phenomena anymore that they're describing. And they become, uh, they, they come to compete against one another about who can say the most obscure thing that uh, is almost impossible to understand. And he compares that uh, with, uh, he basically says a peasant who in farming, if his judgment is wrong about the weather, about the quality of the seeds, he will be punished. Mm. And so what he's saying is that there's a kind of superiority. It's not his final word, but it's important. A superiority in this kind of practical know-how, uh, at least by comparison to that other extreme, which is very close to our universities, uh, that uh, they can be punished for their missteps. And when you go around America, as I said, I'm from the South, I know a lot of people who are not distorted by all of these uh, vain, empty, moralistic abstractions that college forces down your throat, and who are so much more sensible, so much more prudent, whose lives are so much more orderly and normal uh, and decent uh, than the elite. And so coming back to your question, you know, what's going to happen with this elite? Well, two, two, two possibilities, at least. One is that they destroy the country. 
that uh, the doctrines that they are uh, preaching, the doctrines that they, you know, kind of believe in, which is, you know, it's called diversity, identity politics, basically the summary that I gave you of Kendi. Uh, if fully implemented, that will cause either a rebellion and like real hostility, or it will destroy the economy and it will destroy the progress of the sciences. You can't have a physics department that depends on diversity hiring. It just attracts the best. Whoever there is the best should get that job. Whoever is the smartest. So once you start, once you start thinking through the full implementation of all of these doctrines, um, it gets very dark. And look, I think that a lot of these people either that are on the side of it either don't care because they are full of uh, anger and vengeance, or they're more innocent and just, uh, you know, kind of think it'll work. They haven't thought it through. And so those people are our audience because I think that those people are decent and they, and they can still be, if not persuaded, like in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. But just to give you the example of Trump, I mean, nobody was talking about immigration really publicly in the way that he did. Nobody was talking about the press in the way that he did. Certainly nobody was talking about trade. I mean, there was a kind of national consensus on what our trade policy should be, which is shipping everything possible, including our scientific innovations and secrets abroad to rise to raise the GDP. Have you heard of comparative advantage? Yeah, that's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's, that's good. But my point is that, you know, there were a lot of people who, even if they didn't vote for him, these issues will not be the same for them. And so coming back to my point, there are a lot of decent kind of well-meaning, but not, you know, they don't think and they have busy lives. They don't think systematically about where things lead that can be given an off-ramp by it being shown to them what all of this leads to. I think that's right. I mean, again, I, what I always like to come back to is that regardless of what the American regime is doing, America is still full of a lot of very kind and decent people, and, and they're being poorly led and represented in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you guys at Claremont think uh, broadly about civilization um, and, and the challenges facing the country, but obviously, uh, having opened this D.C. office, you guys are turning an eye towards some of these key policy areas that you think are particularly necessary for attention, things like big tech, uh, the university system and so on. What are some of the priorities, the, the lowest hanging fruit in the coming years that you guys have your eyes set on in terms of, uh, of, of policy goals to make sure that we even the playing field in terms of this power imbalance between the right and the left? Yeah. No, it's, it's, I like the way that you put it. It is a power imbalance. And um, the error is in thinking that the left will become moderate by us either arguing to them or begging them. That's not how this works. The marketplace of ideas that's will right. not redeem us. That's, right. it, that, that's not where the country is. Yeah. Uh, a marketplace of ideas can exist when there is some kind of fundamental agreement, broadly speaking, in a nation. Your seven-year-old should be injected with testosterone is not a consensus you can build a marketplace of ideas on. That's it. That's it. I don't mean to dismiss the possibility that speech still works. I mean, it does. Uh, that's why the left is so deeply interested in suppressing it. Um, you know, you j just look at the issues on which they really want to destroy their opposition. And that's where you know actually speech will work. Uh, so I don't think that it's completely hopeless, but you're right. Uh, a more muscular right will mean going after the institutions that the left owns. Um, we talked about universities. That's one. Uh, antitrust for big tech. I think that's very important. 
just to summarize the matter, you know, Google controls 90% of the world's searches, which means that they are the portal into the internet. If it was 1950 and the New York Times had collected a bunch of capital and gobbled up 90% of the nation's local and national newspapers, and then started imposing its moral worldview onto the public and started maybe dictating the outcome of elections, nobody would just say, no, that's fine. That's a free market. It would be unconscionable that a corporation can control the fate of, 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 of a free nation. So there. Um, another uh, uh, issue that I'm very interested in, and Trump discussed this a little bit, is restoring libel laws for the press. Um, and, you know, when I talk about this on the right uh, and on the left, but especially on the right, they're like, no, you know, don't you believe in a freedom of the press? It's like, yeah, of course I do. Uh, we don't have a free press right now in a way. Or let's say it's too free. Uh, it's too free insofar as it can just destroy people. It can destroy public officials, which is what its main goal was during the course of the past four years with Trump. The idea was to tie his hands with whatever lie they can invent uh, so that he can't implement uh, uh, his policies. Not to say that had they been silent, he would have done a better job. I don't know. Uh, that's a, an open question. But the point is that before 1964, we did have a much stronger libel law regime. Uh, it was a Supreme Court case, uh, New York Times v. Sullivan, that created the kind of press environment that we have today. And we certainly had a free press back then. England also has tighter libel laws. Uh, and nobody says that they don't have a free press. Uh, so there are avenues that uh, the right has not tried uh, the right has not tried because they have been partly, as I said before, living in this delusion that, you know, um, things will be rosy again. It's always 1980. Uh, and look, every nation has a peak and a trough and we don't know where we are. I hope we are uh, still on a course for the possibility of revival. But you can't just think we're always at a peak, even when all of the evidence is in front of your face that, that contradicts that. Uh, so there are strategies, there are things that we should be concentrating our forces on, our, our thoughts on, our institutions on, uh, and doing what the left has done so well. Uh, just as one example, I mean, some poor Christian baker in Colorado had his life destroyed by a plot. It was just a plot. They decided that's the guy that we're going to destroy. We're going to send tens of millions of dollars against him. And they won. And we instead of doing things like that or, or other things uh, within that uh, constellation of thought, what we did instead is said, well, um, you know, he was actually exercising his First Amendment right to speech because, you see, he's an artist with cakes. And so he, him doing cakes is, 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 is an expression of his freedom of speech. That's a, that's a losing argument. That's fine as a matter of legalism, but it's so clearly a posture of... Not even that. Of, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does that. seem insufficient. I don't know if you brought this example up intentionally. You're talking about Jack Phillips, the yeah. cake baker. He's actually getting sued again. Uh, and this came out this week for refusing to make a cake for a gender transition surgery so or I, whatever, yes, celebration. No, I appreciate you bring that up. And this is, this is what we... Uh, now, we maybe, but much of the establishment right fails to see is how relentless the left is. Relentless. They will not leave this poor man alone. They, they, want, they want to destroy him. And it's as you said, until there is a balance of power, this is how it's always going to go. And so the question is, well, where, from where will that balance of power emerge? And so part of what I'm suggesting is that uh, we limit through constitutional means uh, 
the institutions that they use to abuse the country and its citizens. But in addition, uh, that can't be it. Uh, the additional part is my view is that the future is in the states. Um, and I am interested in reviving a genuine federalism where governors and legislatures look at themselves as the custodians, the guardians of the rights of their citizens from woke world. And once you look at it that way, then the your mind becomes open to a, a great variety of innovative, interesting policy things that can be done to achieve that end. What conservatives always have, not always, but for the last long time have failed to do is in being dogmatic, in just saying free trade, no matter what, a big military, no matter what, what they fail to see is why those things are necessary, what the real objectives are. And the situation in the country has changed so much because of this imbalance of power that they don't even know the strategy that they're going for. But what this, but what we need is to create safe havens from woke world. And that can only be done in the states. One of the themes that you guys touch on at Claremont a lot is statesmanship. And, you know, as as some of the, the national leaders that, that I admire quite a bit have started to turn to this question of the states, I always I take a step back for a second because I actually cut my teeth in politics in the states, in the state of Texas specifically. And I've seen the sorts of moral cowardice that would, you know, make a six-year-old girl blush. Um, it is incredible how weak so many Republicans, conservatives, decent people at the uh, state legislative level are. They yep. are fully incapable of fighting what is often the force of, you know, the full force of global corporations brought down on them when they dare to resist the narrative of the woke left. Uh, it's been this way. It continues to be this way. And so I, I, I can't help but wonder if that that lack of statesmanship that so many of them have is is going to ultimately be a barrier to us getting that done. How do you how do you and and your allies think about maybe restoring a spine to these folks? Yeah. No, it's a it's it's not what you just summarized is not the problem uh, only of the states. It's the National Republican Party's problem in general. So I agree. Um, there are a couple at the national level they get to say, but if you give us, you know, just one more seat in the Senate, maybe we'll do what you want. You know, they have <laughs> these interesting cop outs, but in, you know, right. a trifecta supermajority Republican states or what have you, they don't have that excuse. And so yeah. they come up with a constellation of others. If you give us one more senator and five more dollars, I promise <laughs> we will repeal Obamacare for real this time. Yeah, yeah. right. Well, um, what you say is valid without doubt. Um I think that uh, the problem will in part be solved in a way on its own because of the great uh, domestic migration that's taking place. Uh, red people that live in blue states are going to red states. And those people should come there with a mission that we will not allow what happened to where we came from to take place again. And so there is a greater constituency for doing stronger things. That's partly it. Look, it's partly um, they're, they're, they are cowardly because they don't really know what they're fighting for. Uh, they're always just fighting for more free markets. They're fighting for, you know, Goldman Sachs to come to their state or whatever. Uh, Please move the New York Stock Exchange to my state so that it. you can also corporatize, financialize and destroy our economy. No, that's it. That's it. That's exactly right. And so part of what's needed is just I mean, this is what was so powerful about Trump how simple his um, 
analysis of what's wrong in the nation was. I mean, it's just a handful of issues. This isn't America anymore. You either have borders or you don't. You either have a country or you don't. Uh, you're being defrauded by all of the oligarchs in terms of trade. I mean, th there is a growing market of angry people who very much can be led by sensible statesmen on the state level by just articulating the circumstance and guiding the constituency towards that. And a little spine will be rewarded. Um, I suspect, I shouldn't speculate, but I suspect that you know what Christy Nome did will cost her gravely. Uh, but had she done the opposite, she would have been a national hero. Uh, there's a constituency to reward this kind of um, you know, firm behavior. Uh, and they are not catching up yet, but DeSantis has learned that lesson. Um, I know you're from Texas and it has a dynamic of its own that I don't pretend to understand. But there are other states where people can rise and give these examples of success, of what it looks like to actually be courageous, what it actually looks like to um, undo the things that the left has forced down the throats of citizens and others will follow. I hope you're right. Uh, be bold and and uh, and advance these priorities as forthrightly as we possibly can. Uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast, Arthur. Where can people find more about the work that you're doing? Sure. Well, you can find us at dc.claremont.org. That's our website. You'll be able to see us on Twitter too. Uh, you do not have a Twitter account. I don't have a Twitter. That should be rectified. No. <laughs> I've lived without it. Uh, I, I That's not where my life is going, to fight little battles on Twitter. But I do follow a lot of interesting people and I learn a lot from Twitter so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that it exists well your soul is probably better off for it thank you for joining us Arthur thank you guys pleasure Every week after we have our guests on, we love to talk about some of our favorite books, essays, podcasts, YouTube videos, and more that we have featured on AmCanon, which is our aggregator of some of our favorite stuff on AmericanMoment.org. This week, I wanted to highlight a feature that we put together called Putting Families First, or Putting American Families First, actually. Uh, we've been doing these features about once every two weeks and intend on doing it for the foreseeable future that sort of distill on a, on a narrower topic some of our favorite stuff in, in a way that's not really chronological, but sort of complexity-oriented. So we lead with the podcast we did last week with Terry Schilling that goes into some of the threats to the American family and some of the solutions that people have proposed. Then we have a couple of pieces and videos on, on the basics of the issue, and then even some books and longer essays to dive deeper. We highly recommend that you check it out. Uh, the editors of AmCanon put in a lot of hard work putting that together every couple of weeks, so we hope you see that. We have our previous feature, Personnel as Policy, as well, and uh, we just recommend that you dive in. Again, we assembled this AmCanon material because we think that there's so much great stuff that's already out there, stuff that we frankly don't need to write that we just need to bring back to the fore and help people bring to the front of their attention. So please make sure you check out the feature. Nick, what did you want to talk about on this AmCanon Roundup today? Yeah, so specifically, uh, after our conversation with with Arthur, I wanted to highlight a book that was, you know, probably one of the most formative things that I've read in the last six months. Actually, a book I got for, for Christmas called 
First principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how it shaped our country. Um, this book basically goes through, um, you know, kind of the founders um, upbringing and, and education uh, and how, you know, philosophers like Epicurus, um, Aristotle, Cato, Cicero um, influenced the basically um influenced the way that, you know, the founders thought about creating a country and how it should be governed. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things about this book is like how frequently these founders, even though they came from like all different sides of the political spectrum, talked about virtue as as a as a core principle, um, you know, that America could stand for. And I think that's something that that's, you know, really reflected by our episode with with Arthur today, you know, talking about how we kind of restore public virtue. Uh, I think that's something really important that's, you know, neither political party really talks about anymore. Um, so you can get this book. It's by Thomas Ricks, uh, who is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize. I also have a signed book plate. If you tag him on Twitter and answer a uh, answer a pop quiz, he'll send you a signed book plate. Um, Hopefully, like thousands of you don't do that. He'll be very mad at me. Um, but you can buy this uh, from us at um, our bookshop. And the link for that is bookshop.org slash shop slash American Moment. So you can get that book as well as any of the other books that we have on Amcanon from local booksellers at bookshop.org. Again, to clarify, you're not buying the book from us per se. We get a very, very tiny commission. But what you're actually doing is helping support the small booksellers that frankly are having a really hard time because of the coronavirus pandemic. And if you don't want the corporate overlords at Amazon to completely wipe out every tiny bookstore in the country, we highly recommend that you support them by buying books, not just necessarily off of our bookshop, although we think that that's a fantastic idea, but in general from local booksellers. You know, I think that that book you brought up, Nick, is, is such a great example. One of the things we talked about in our episode with Arthur was about how the constitution of the founder's design had within it the tools to not just maintain liberty, but also maintain order in a lot of ways. And there's so many, quote unquote, conservatives today that love to pretend like all the Constitution was for and existed to do was to restrain government, when in reality, it created a system in which government could also promote virtue. And that's something mm -hmm. we care deeply about. It's something Arthur cares deeply about. And I think it gets into some of the lessons that that we can learn from the book that you mentioned. Well, and it's worth noting, too, that um Thomas Ricks is is not a conservative in the modern political sense. He he writes this book from the perspective of like someone who is shocked by Donald Trump's election, you know, after 2016. But I think it's really revealing that even coming at, you know, the 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 history of the education of the founders from a liberal perspective, you can still find that maintaining order and virtue uh, was a core part of the the founders intents when they wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation, even though that didn't go so well, and uh, the Constitution. So again, highly recommend you check this out. Read the enemy. You know, it's it's important uh, to know what they're thinking about. Um, but also, this is this is really a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. And with that, we'll close out the podcast today and we'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings, 
Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. 